Small Farm Nation is sponsored by Farmers Web, software for your farm. Farmers Web helps farms inform buyers of available product, handle orders, simplify customer interactions, and reduce the administrative load. So check them out at farmersweb.com. So, how do you save rare breeds of rabbits? Well, by eating them, of course. Hey, it's Tim Young of smallfarmnation.com. Today, we discuss all things rabbits, including how to save breeds by eating them with the farmers from Rare Hair Barn. Hey there, thanks for joining me again. Today, I'm speaking with Colleen and Eric Rapp of Rare Hair Barn in Kansas. Now, they raise a few types of heritage breed rabbits, including the American chinchilla, which I've also raised quite a bit of. Now, just a few months ago, Eric and Colleen authored the book Raising Rabbits for Meat, which was published by New Society Publishers. You can grab it on Amazon. Now, I love this topic of raising rabbits for meat for many reasons. So, yeah, you can tell right away that I'm not a vegetarian, as if you didn't know that already. But I love it because, in general, our society has become very disconnected from our food and what food is, right? Nowhere in the meat world is that more evidenced than with rabbits. Because when I raised and sold them, we'd often get skittish customers who claimed they had no idea what to do with a rabbit. So is cooking rabbit any different from cooking with chicken or other meats? You bet it is. And I discussed that and many other fascinating aspects of running a rabbit enterprise on a small farm. Now, for those of you interested in raising rabbits, either as a commercial enterprise or for your homestead, we discuss differences in breeds, growth rates, and mistakes that many people make with feeding and breeding rabbits. We also dive deep into the issue of production models. That is, we explore using cages versus pasture tractors versus colony raising rabbits. So it doesn't matter if you're a consumer, a chef, a homesteader, or farmer. This is a thoroughly interesting episode about the life and death of rabbits and how one family is making a living of it in our small farm nation. So let's get right to it with Colleen and Eric Rapp of Rare Hair Barn. Joining me today is Colleen and Eric Raff of Rare Hair Barn in Leon, Kansas, near Wichita. Rare Hair Barn is the largest heritage breed meat rabbit enterprise in the U.S. And these guys authored a great book, an excellent book, Raising Rabbits for Meat, that you can get on Amazon, so check it out. So guys, welcome to Small Farm Nation. Thank you. So, Thanks. you know, um, if I was to go out today and ask a group of kindergartners, like, hey, what do you guys want to do when you grow up? I suspect a few of them might say, well, I want to raise rabbits. But, you know, here you are as grown-ups doing it. Is this something that you guys always wanted to do? I've been around them since I was uh, probably younger than a kindergartner, and out of it was just out of uh, back at that time, everybody had five, six, seven acres, and you pretty much lived out of your garden and what meat you raised. So. Uh, my grandfather was uh, well known for showing rabbits and was real good at it. And uh, I kind of, out of necessity, became his first uh, employee at an early age that was young enough to carry a bucket of feed. And he could find out I could do other things. So 
he actually started me in the bug. So yeah, probably about a kindergartner is about where I started in it. But if, oh, I was just going to say, if you asked me the same question, I would never have thought I wanted to wind up being a rabbit farmer. Um, before we raised them, I'd never even eaten rabbit or didn't even know if I liked it. So and we come from both ends of that spectrum. And that's actually a very good background from your point of view. We'll, we'll jump around here. But one of the things that we find when we raise something like rabbit, uh, Eric, you mentioned doing this before being a kindergarten. Back then, it was normal. I mean, people knew what to do with a rabbit. But now I got to believe that you're actually producing and selling a product that many consumers go, what do I even do with this thing? Yes, that is very true. Well, it, it's uh, the first obstacle they run into is uh cooking it because it has no skin on it like a chicken and basically it can be cooked any dish that you use chicken for you can substitute it with rabbit but it's easy to make a mistake with it and once you do that it's hard to go back to it so you have to with a lot of meat have to kind of teach them how to use it in the beginning or it won't go very far yeah, one example of that uh, that I found is, of course, that, uh, you know, when you're cooking a chicken, you're usually or very often cooking it with a skin on, which can make it very forgiving. Can you talk about that differentiation and how that affects the cooking? Well, um, rabbit doesn't even have any intramuscular fat. Um, so the best way to cook it is, you know, low temperature um, for, a, for a longer time. I mean, roasting and braising and rotisserie are all good ways to cook it. Um, but with it being so lean, it's something you have to kind of pay attention to. You can't, you know, put it on and then, you know, go someplace else for a couple hours. You kind of got to watch it, um, you know, be prepared to baste it and just kind of, um, you know, keep an eye on it, I think, um, is the biggest thing. Yeah, you know, I think I, I think I read somewhere on your website, maybe, Colleen, I don't know if you wrote this or if Eric had written this, but when you talk about getting into producing um rabbits for consumers i think i read one of the things that you had written is that people um don't trust the food system and it's one of the reasons and, and maybe you didn't trust the food system and it's one of the reasons why you started i'm not sure if that's true or not um if that is true what is it about the food system our our typical american food system that people don't trust and how are you trying to change that well i think um that is something that you know, you probably have read on our website and things like that. That was kind of how we got started in this adventure was after, you know, the 90 millionth food recall, you know, it just makes it really hard to trust what you're going to the grocery store and purchase. So at the time we both had some uh, parents that were getting older. And so it just kind of concerns about that and rabbit being so nutritious. That's kind of why we launched into that. Um, but it's it's hard to have faith in something that's such a conglomerate. You can have faith in someone that you meet face to face, like say at the farmer's market or somebody that you develop a relationship because you know they are eating what you're eating, what they're selling to you. So I just, I find it much easier to have faith in people rather than corporations. Yeah, absolutely. You bring it, bringing an element of transparency into the equation. Absolutely. So tell us about your, your farm. I mean, um, how much land or how's it set up or, you know, what does it look like to us uh, who are only hearing about this via audio? Well, we are in Kansas and contrary to all the rumors, Kansas is not a hundred percent flat. 
Um, we live in an area that does have hills and trees, and we're right on the uh, tail end of the Flint Hills, which was at one time the largest um, native grass region in the United States. Um, we have 40 acres. We also have a herd of heritage breed Piney Woods cattle and some goats, a rare breed of goat that we're working with, and um, some mutt chickens in the whole, you know, the whole nine yards with that. Um, but it's, you know, a small farm, mostly pasture, and then we have our rabbits up here close to the house and just some buildings. We've got a garden, which is largely made out of rabbit manure, so that's kind of the visual snapshot. If you're dealing with a rare breed of goat, I hope it's one that won't get out of a fence because I haven't found one yet that I can keep in a fence. Yeah, I don't think that breed of goat exists. So there, there's the opportunity for you. So what products then are, I, I know you mentioned a lot of these products like the piney wood cattle, but I didn't see that. I didn't see grass-fed beef, for example, on your farm, on your website. What products are you producing for sale? Um, mostly it's just the rabbits. We have worked with the Piney Woods for a while, but mostly we just produce beef for our own use. Um, don't do a lot of retail sales with that. I've sold some breeding stock. Um, we we mostly work with rare and heritage breeds, so whenever possible, we, we try to find a breeding stock home for them. Um, and the cattle are mostly just for our own use. So rabbit could give you at least four products that I can think of. I mean, it can give you the meat, it could give you the fur, you could sell, you know, the breeding stock, for example. I mean, you could make, you could sell rabbit manure, which is incredible fertilizer. So what products are you selling uh, that relate to rabbits? Yeah, all of those. Yeah, we do all of that. Um, we sell the manure. We've got a nursery that comes and um, purchases manure from us, um, the meat. About the only thing that we don't, sell is the fur um that's kind of a hard sale so um i've i've done some home tanning and some pelts and one of these days i'm going to be the crazy rabbit lady in the patchwork fur coat um but uh, the, the fur is a bit of a harder sale so eric, eric when you were younger did you did your family actually um i mean because if you go back 50 60 years i'm not sure how long ago we're talking um but if you go back to, a long time ago, back to the depression stuff, that was the big business for rabbits like American chinchilla wasn't actually using the fur, or at least that's my understanding. Did, did your family do anything like that? Uh, mostly my grandfather uh, sold show stock and, and um, the, the extra meat that he had, he sold, but it was mainly supplied the entire family in general, uh, aunts and uncles and on down the line. So he pretty much paid uh, his expenses of raising his own out of what he sold to other people. So basically his food that he got from the rabbits was free. Uh, but yeah, the American chinchilla was uh, a great success story during the depression. And the guy that actually was kind of the godfather of it was uh, in a small little suburb in Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, made a million dollars with him during the Depression and basically started out um, raising him and then uh, getting other people involved in it uh, and then buying back the breeding stock and continuing that kind of chain with that of keeping the best and selling the, the rest went to market. Of course, fur was a, in huge demand. Back then, uh, I mean, a lot of times I feel like really the rabbit meat was the 
byproduct of the pelt industry when you look at the history of the fur industry back in the 20s. Right, right. Um, so when you're when you're selling your meat, let's talk about how you're going to market. Are you selling directly to consumers or are you selling to restaurants? Um, you know, what's your ratio there? I, I would say probably 99% of our sales is to restaurants. Um, we haven't done farmers markets and we'll only do occasionally, you know, retail sales to people. Um, but 99% of our market is the restaurants. Was it that way when you began back in 2003 or 2005, whenever you started, or has that been a transition? It, it's been a transition. Um, back when we started, it was difficult to try to, to get restaurants interested in it. You know, I made dozens and dozens of cold calls, and I got so used to hearing no that the first time I actually got a yes, I almost hung up on the guy. Um, because I was so used to just thanking them politely and, and moving on. Um, so it's been, it's been over the, you know, the period of time that we've really built up the relationships with the chef and there's a, a whole new generation of really talented, young, creative chefs that are, are looking for what makes them unique and looking for products that have a story. And so, um, once we kind of hit that tipping point, um, then the restaurant sales did take off, but it was it was a struggle in the beginning. Well, and actually, we didn't start the rabbit venture with the goal of, of supplying restaurants. Um, that became out of a necessity to, um, our main goal was breed conservation. A lot of these breeds we worked with were almost extinct. And in order to repopulate breeds, you have to handle a large number of animals because not every animal that's born is potential breeding stock. So if you do a good job and supplying breeding stock, quality breeding stock, you have to call animals pretty hard to keep the good in the pipeline. So there's only so many friends and family that you can sell and get interested in eating rabbits. So once we got into the larger numbers and the breeding stock demand kind of came to a, a surface, uh, we had to find an outlet to go with the more uh, cull rabbits that weren't potential breeding stock. So that's when she got on the phone and we started calling around all over the country. And, and uh, it's, it's a hard sell on that end because you may have some restaurant that takes uh, a box of 12 once a year for a special dinner or wine tasting. And then you might find one that, that you get in and get a good relationship with and they keep it on their menu, but they're creative enough to continue to make new dishes because there's competition in that restaurant market now of different types of proteins being utilized. So uh, they have to keep a step ahead of the next restaurant that may put rabbit on the menu. So they keep them coming back for more dishes so the restaurant end of it is is wasn't something we we was a, a goal we were going to go after it was, came out of necessity of keeping the pipeline of the heritage breeding stock uh, available to other breeders you know you you just touched on so many points there that i want to come back to and, and we'll do this in a second there's a lot of really great information there but colleen i'm assuming that you don't have a background before this uh, of being in sales and marketing is that true Oh, that is so true. That was really hard for me, um, you know, getting started because um, it's just, 
I, I'm just such a little softy. It's hard for me to hear no, but you have to, if you're going to be in sales, you have to learn to, to develop a little bit of a turtle shell. You know, it's something that a lot of my members in the Small Farm Nation Academy really struggle with when we talk about this idea of pitching restaurants or pitching distributors or, or pitching anybody. I know, or, and it doesn't have to be just farmers. I noticed in most industries, people struggle with this. And if there's ever been an industry that I think that people shouldn't struggle with pitching or selling, it's farming. And the reason is because what we're really doing here is sharing. We're so passionate about what we're doing. We're just sharing with someone that we have this product for you. We have this opportunity for you. Yet everyone is so afraid. And I'm wondering, what was it like for you to overcome that hurdle, to pick up the phone? What did you hear on the phone? How did you keep going? How did you push through all that? Um, a lot of it was just um, just practicing. I just kind of, um, I made my little talking points and I just kind of got my little sales pitch. And most of the time people are polite. I mean, they're not rude. They're not like trying to hurt your feelings. They're just busy. Um, you know, so that was, was helpful to kind of get my little pitch and my talking points honed, um, you know, and then just practice and repetition. And then when we finally started getting more yeses, then we got no's. Um, it just made it all worthwhile, I guess. So, so over t over time, of course, you honed your pitch. Did you did you find certain things that worked? I mean, I, I assume you became more concise and tighter in your pitch. But what were the kind of bullet points that resonated with chefs? Um, a lot of it was the story and um, finding out that this was something different. This was absolutely not the same product that they picked up and ordered from a large commercial you know, rabbit farm or something like that. They were unique. They had a history. And also kind of another good selling point was that they were helping us conserve these rare breeds by providing an outlet for the surplus. So I think kind of just um, instead of focusing on being afraid of being told no, I really started focusing on the story and what made us do this. And that was when you start I started building better connections with people. Well, and a lot of times it becomes that when you get it to where you need them as much as they need you, and the story continues, they uh, you go into a lot of the restaurants that we've been in for years. They uh, they're telling our story too, and it's and when the people sit down to a special rabbit dish dinner that's 100% rabbits, they tell the story of but me, you know following my granddad around doing the same thing I'm doing, you know, years and years later. Hmm. Well, there's a lot of elements of your story that resonates real well for them. Of course, um, when you're selling locally, there's the local element, but really a big part of your story, of course, is the heritage breeds. And I know, Eric, you talked about that a second ago, that your initial goal wasn't the small restaurants. It was breed conservation and Colleen, I know, or I believe that you're on the board of directors of the American Livestock Breeds Conservancy. Now, in my case, uh, I've raised American chinchilla rabbits, um, you know, on my farm. Now, Eric, one of the things I didn't do was try to choose for the best of the best in the breed because I wasn't trying to necessarily conserve the breed. I was trying to produce a meat product. But how do you go about choosing? You mentioned you have to do a lot of calling. What am I looking for if I've got a buck and if I've got a doe? Am I supposed to be looking at a visual image and selecting against that, or what am I looking for? Well, the first problem that was happened to the actual true meat breed rabbits, um, 
a lot of them were selected for show stock and and that mainly goes on fur quality um and fur quality doesn't resonate into the meat um and a lot of the the meat rabbits were structurally incorrect when you pick them up and start feeling them. The, the shoulders are narrow and there's no meat on the front. We actually had a retired chef that we met at a livestock conservancy conference in New York that we were talking about rabbits there. And he come up to us and had said that he'd had rabbits in his restaurants years ago, but he quit using them because there was no meat in the front end of the rabbit. So it was pretty expensive for him to buy an animal that he couldn't do anything with the front end of it and the front leg, you know, there's a lot of dishes that involve front legs. We've even had a chef that had done rabbit wings in Kansas city and developed a barbecue sauce and doing the American Royal barbecue stuff. It was a big hit in the Kansas city area. So, um, structurally is where you have to start and correct that animal. Um, you can work on the fur and that stuff as you go along, because that's all part of the specific breeds. And especially in chinchillas where you've got so many layers of fur to look at colors um but if you have the, the rabbit structurally correct to what it was back in its heyday when it was a meat rabbit you can start working on uh good mothering ability and, and litters that litter size that are uniform and, and weaning ability uh, you don't get anywhere by feeding an animal and not getting it to the end result of the production you're wanting, whether it's uh, selling, you know, babies at, at, at breeding stock or, or meat rabbits at the end. So a good, it's like with anything, a house or whatever, it's a good foundation that you work with, build from there, and you might have a doe that has a litter for you whenever you want it, but she only has two or three rabbits. That, you know, if you look at your feed bill, and that's a lot of what we kept records on is, is weaning weights, those birth weights. We, ha we have data that would take an intern probably two years to decode and get it into, you know, and it's breed specific. I mean, it's not just on the whole herd. It's on every breed we had. We had live weights and processing weights. You know, we can tell you what percentages they dressed in the summer and the winter year round. Um, so good foundation is to start with, and you know you have to have an end goal and you reach that. And good record keeping. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned breeds there. So in addition to the American chinchilla, what breeds are you raising and producing? Uh, we have the American blue and white, which uh, the the white version of the Americans is really pushed off the table a lot because nobody likes a plain white rabbit, but production-wise, if I were going to pick between those two, the white is more productive. The blues are more popular, and a lot of times when popularity hits a breed, it's not necessarily uh, rabbits. We start getting away from selecting for the production qualities and more on pretty, and so uh, the whites do a lot better because there's not that many people working with them. The silver foxes, we have the black version of those. We, for a while, were working with the blue version. The blue version was actually shown for years, but it fell off the 
show tables because the, there wasn't enough people showing them and it takes about five years of, of getting them approved to get them back on the show table uh we've had the blanc del toe which um that's a french rabbit and i'll kind of leave it at that they're kind of a little on the frisky crazy side <laughs> challenge to work with they were a breed that was developed by a woman and i'll leave it at that do they smoke uh, yeah, <laughs> some of them do. Um, and what else did we have? We had some crane d'argents for a while. So, so you had, so Eric, you mentioned you kept all these records by breed. Now, so in terms of running a commercial enterprise, if your if your objective is purely to profitably produce meat rabbits, do you have a preference on those breeds? Yeah, the American chinchilla. <laughs> they they will. They are low maintenance. They're they're a little on the you know they're protective of their babies, which is good. They'll they'll lay down and have you consistent litters year round, any kind of weather. Uh, cookie cutter babies that you know just they'll wean pretty much everything they have, and they're just you know I there's a reason why they were the rabbit to go to during the depression because they were a high end production, you know low maintenance. Uh, I, I would love to have been able to step back in time into some of those old rabbitries just to look and see what was actually going on. And that's the requisite commercial you get for American chinchillas in our house. <laughs> well, you get it from me too. I mean, it's the, it's the rabbit we raised and, you know, absolutely loved it. But, you know, that was from a commercial point of view. That's the difference. I, I'm wondering, do, do you see, this is a, to me, this is a little bit of a subjective question. Maybe you can make it more objective, but do you see any, carcass quality or taste differences between the breeds? Not a tremendous amount. Um, the Oto rabbit, when we have kind of done a comparison side by side, that meat has been a little paler and a little maybe sweeter than the other breeds, but it's a, it's a subtle, subtle difference. And I'm sure, you know, a chef with a really sophisticated palate could you know, tell you all sorts of differences, but it's not been anything that's really been super obvious to us. When we send uh, meat out to restaurants, they usually, and we keep it breed specific all the way, the, the labeling even has what breed is, on, is in that package. Um, hmm. We've never had uh, a chef say, you know, send me more silver foxes or, you know, there's never been that type of call. What you do find is that the carcasses in the, um, American blues and the silver foxes, they're going to be a little longer bodied animal and it takes them a little longer to get them to the sweet spot market weight. The chinchillas are going to finish just like clockwork. The carcasses are, are packed, very meaty. The loins are excellent in them. Um, you know, you just, uh, taste wise, I, we've never had anybody send us, uh, an email or anything saying, oh, I'd rather have this. Uh, one of the things, though, with silver foxes, they're a little trickier to process. Um, the fur seems to stick to their carcass a little more than the other breeds, and we have to take extra time making sure we get that rinsed off uh, as well as we can. So, you know, that's about the only thing I, we can say about differences in rabbit carcasses. Hey, Small Farm Nation. Ever wonder why some farms have a wait list of loyal customers while you work an off-farm job and struggle just to stay afloat? Well, the secret to having a thriving farm business isn't a secret at all. It's called marketing. 
Successful farms know that marketing is the first priority because without customers willing to pay the prices you require, your farm can't survive. But here's some exciting news if you struggle with farm marketing. Now you can become a farm marketing ninja just by joining smallfarmnationacademy.com. Small Farm Nation Academy is jam-packed with farm marketing video lessons, downloadable resources, mastermind calls with successful farmers, and a rich community forum. If you're struggling with your farm's website, you can even get a modern farm press website for your farm included for free if you'd like. And get this, if you'd like personal guidance specific to your farm business, you're in luck because smallfarmnationacademy.com members get one-to-one -one coaching from Tim Young, free, anytime. It's like having Tim as your on-call farm marketing mentor. By applying what you'll learn in Small Farm Nation Academy, you'll become the preferred brand in your market. So instead of struggling to find customers, customers will seek you out. Isn't it time that you made marketing the priority of your farm business? So head over to smallfarmnationacademy.com right now and get growing. Let's uh, let's segue let's segue into uh, production methods because um, you know this gets talked about a lot, and I have a little bit of experience in this. I know you have a ton of experience with this. There are people that you know advocate raising rabbits in cages. There are people that advocate. Uh, raising rabbits uh, in the equivalent of a chicken tractor. Um, you know, there, are, there are people that advocate raising rabbits uh, in a warren um, or basically a free-range system, a colony system. And, uh, you know, there are people that are listening to this podcast that are homesteaders that might want to do it on a small scale. And then there are other people that may aspire to do it on a large scale. But w when and how would you make, first of all, tell us how you're raising yours and why you're raising them that way. And then I want to get into how can we decide which production method is right for what we may want to do? Our production is, is all up in pens. Um, we have about 400 pens to make this uh, machine work. Uh, the, the pen, I mean, any system will work if you think it all the way through and, and you take in predation and the consistency of food you're going to feed them because. Uh, rabbits and well any animal has to have a consistent diet so a lot of times it ends up we look for cheaper methods to do something and but expect an over above the line in production and that normally won't happen on a consistent basis you might hit a sweet spot of rabbits that does well and then you do the same thing on the next batch and they're they're no good so ours um one of the things we we do is the cleanliness um, we, um, have them in about eight different barns. So they're not all in the same barns. Uh, that was done out of growth. And I, I don't think if I would go back and do it again, I would put them all in one barn. Uh, you, you need to have a, a, a system where you can go with your calls, your animals, you're not going to keep really to a separate location. Um, your breeding needs to be done in a separate location. The, Bucks need to be a, really away from the does. So when you take those does to those bucks, it's a new experience, and the, the bucks don't get lazy being around the does close and stuff like that. So, um, and where we breed year round, and it's a conservation uh, operation where we keep track of the breeds and litter integrities. To keep litter integrities, you have to keep the uh, 
if you cross foster rabbits, it's really good to have another breed to foster those babies onto so you can keep track of those individual breeds because uh, painting their toenails with finger polish, marking their ears with uh, Sharpie and stuff like that doesn't last very long. So if you're going to keep a true operation where you're putting out breeding stock, you have to kind of tweak it a little bit to make sure that you're keeping everything true. Um, our manure we sell, um, we don't use any uh, straw, hay, or uh, any type of bedding like that. Um, we don't uh, have foreign weed seeds in our, our manure. We use, we shred up our feed sacks, which are paper, and that goes uh, into the nest boxes, and then that can go back into the manure, and it, you don't end up with a rabbit manure is a great fertilizer, and if you throw any foreign material in it, it will grow roots and things that you've never seen. So uh, that's one aspect that keeps that, you know, you, you have to have a little side business within a business to really make a niche market operation work. If you just are going to sell one thing, you're, you know, if that stops, you're done. So um, we, we did do a... Uh, trial on finishing rabbits on pasture um, that works to an extent you, they will dig out of pretty much anything you do that doesn't have a wire floor or some type of uh, flooring under it you also have the possibility of predators digging in after them uh, one of the things we did see with that setup was um, it's pretty high maintenance. Uh, I had a four foot wide tractor. There's actually a picture of it in the book. I would move the, the, the protected shed area and they would eat the grass through the wire wire flooring that was down on the ground so the grass could grow up through where they wouldn't dig out. But those rabbits would take that grass down. I mean, they would eat the roots, I think, if you let them. So mm -hmm. That would have to be moved on a daily basis. Um, and what we did see was that the rabbits all started out the same age, same way. Uh, what we started to see was uh, some of them were starting to tail off. One or two of them out of eight would do fairly well. And then the rest of them would just start tailing off. And you could see them just getting behind. Uh, one of the downsides of of uh, that type of setup if you're in an area of like where we went through almost four summers of drought here uh you run out of stuff to feed them then you have to start dragging the sprinkler around and watering grass so you have to put blow that balloon up you have to blow it all the way up to get you know all your end results out of it so um, our operation was designed for uh, i take care of them basically myself so when you're doing rounds on 400 pens compared to an operation that you would scatter out, um, it would take more labor, more time, uh, more things to go wrong. The um, one of the other things we did see with the rabbits that were finished on grass, uh, where it's taken 12 to 14 weeks uh, with the rabbits up on the pens on pellets, which is a consistent diet. It was taken upwards to 26 weeks to finish basically the same breeds that were finishing it and half that on pellet. Mm. 
Yeah, you know, the idea, like when you when you sit around and talk about the idea at home of I'm going to have a colony for rabbits and whatever, I mean, it sounds good. I mean, I, I like the visual of me having rabbits um, on, out on pasture, running around, hopping and being happy compared to cages. But there's also a lot of downside with that. I mean, I've got to believe, well, number one, keeping up with breeding lines is next to impossible. You know, catching them is hard because they love to dig everywhere. I've got to believe diseases and, you know, viruses and ear mites and everything can can run rampant in that kind of system. And I can't harvest the manure either for my, my own garden or for a product. So it seems to me like there's a lot of downsides also to that, um, uh, that colony equation that doesn't get talked about. Right. There definitely are. I mean, I think it would be difficult to do any sort of scale with a colony just for a lot of the reasons that you just, you know, outlined. Um, coccidia is a big risk for rabbits that are on the ground, and that's just a little protozoan parasite carried by birds. Um, and there's a couple different forms, but one of them affects the liver. And when you are processing for human consumption, the, that can render your whole carcass um, condemned. So just from, you know, avoiding that, um, we feel it's best to keep them off the ground. Um, and, you know, they, it, it is kind of just that whole image of what does grasp and free roam really mean? Um, and in this case, you know, with rabbits, I just don't know that it works well in all circumstances. Well, you, know? you, you, you can do rabbits in a grazing situation, but you really need to do a lot of prep work in getting a line of rabbits that digestively yeah. can take being fed alternative types of feed stuff. I mean, the pellet was designed for a reason, and that was for Complete that nutrition. animal to every time they take a bite, it's a balanced diet. In the beginning, we were not going to feed a commercial feed. Uh, and we were, I found a, a ration in a 1933, uh, actually it was an American chinchilla um, organization book, and, and it was whole grains, uh, hay, and I went on a search at the local co-op, and it had whole wheat in it, and I figured being in the wheat state, I could get wheat without too much trouble, and they were, well, we're not going to open our bin for anything other under, you know, 500 bushel and all I needed was 50 pounds um, so we bought we even bought a, a power takeoff driven grinder mixer and I followed the we ground up the hay all the ingredients was extra labor well what we found when we started feeding that we had some rabbits that would pick through and eat the whole grain while anything that was ground was getting raked through to get to the whole grain well, oh that, oh that would hit, and then and then I hit their manure, and then you had a whole wheat field or something. Yeah, I had Not some much. better crops than some of the farmers, but and it's also was hard to clean the barns out because all that stuff drops through the flooring and into the into the manure, and now where we can go in with the, basically a concrete trowel and a scoop shovel and clean the barn out, and you know, little uh, no time. It was pitchfork, you know, and wet, soppy manure and stuff you couldn't deal with. And then you take that to the garden and, you know, and then you've got to rototill, try to or wait for it to break down. So, you know, the, the whole thing with any livestock and kind of like what we 
the line we took with the book was, you know, what's your plan? Because you can you can implement any plan, but you ha- you know you have to take in the surroundings and you know what's the temperature going to be there during the winter of where I might want to put the rabbits. We we've, we've known people that have lost rabbits that thought they had a good place to put them, and then it became summertime, and oops, that didn't work because it got hot. It was fine when it was cool, and now it's not when it's hot. So um, you know you can build pens out of different materials and you know you build them out of wood and i always tell people you know rabbits are part beaver and you can build the nicest wooden structure and within six months to a year you're looking at it's like where'd the pen go right uh you know earlier when we talked about i just want to touch back on the uh, whole issue of restaurants for just one second uh because i overlooked this earlier i know you're located in kansas which small farm nation listeners is not flat i just learned that today but um, are you selling only to restaurants in Kansas? Are you selling nationwide or what's your, what's your territory? Um, we have, um, back in the early days, we did sell nationwide. We you know, sold to New York, California, um, places like that. But in the last few years, the foodie um, market or scene in Kansas City has really blown up. Kansas City has really... Uh, become a leader in the nation as far as restaurants and creativity and, and the food farm scene, farm-to-table stuff. Um, so we have been able to just really kind of back down from that and just focus locally. Well, we've been in last count probably served in over 60 different restaurants over the years and probably two dozen special dinners like Feast of the Fields and wine tastings and things like that around the country but it's uh, you know to be consistently in some place that's one thing what you have to put into your marketing cap is you may be someplace for a short time and then never in there again Uh, or they may tell a chef friend or a chef a sous chef moves to another restaurant or opens their own operation and they want to use your product because it has such a name and it's you know it's a a, a staple in the meat business uh, so if you build it off of restaurants and just a case in point years ago we had one uh, guy call us and and wanted 300 fryers a week and he had a business out in California at that time that was that we were he was wanting to supply uh restaurants and and different things and you know we we were doing maybe 50 a month and you know to do if you take bite on that and go oh here's the demand for 300 fryers a week and build your operation to that number one it it would be so large you would have to hire people and build buildings and lose lose that contact with the customer which is one thing that we never ever want to do or intend to do is to lose that personal contact with them and to become just something that came in a box that day so i had a lot of people that looked at me when i told them that story about 300 fryers a week and they were like oh you're crazy you should be on that and you know take all the money you can make and i said you know and i'm a numbers person if you look at that from a number standpoint the number of litters you would have to have and then you know just Putting that together, I wouldn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And the thing I keep telling people is 
that was a phone call that came out of nowhere and that person can go away just as quick as they contacted you. Right, right. You could set up to, to you know, gear yourself toward an individual customer and then, you know, a month, two months, six months, a year down the road, they go, oh, restaurant closed. And you've got to find a place to go with that items. And rabbits are a hard uh, box to fill because you have to, first of all, get the rabbits old enough to breed and then get them bred, then get them weaned. So from day, even though it's a 30-day gestation period, you do that and you don't know how many of those are going to be ready to market at, at a specific window of time. And if you commit yourself to that and can't you fulfill can't that, it. that restaurant or customer is going to go, oh, well, the guy down the road selling them too. I'll get them from him. And then when you do have that, you'll have a hard time getting them back. Really so the, the marketing in it, and it's not just with rabbits. When you get into a specific niche, you have to be very careful how big an ice rink you get out on before you learn to skate. You know, it's, it's, it's tricky. Yeah, because, you know, in that case where uh, you get an opportunity for 300 a week, a lot of farmers would look at that and go, wow, there's a great opportunity. But it's the proverbial all your eggs in one basket risk that you're taking. And that easy come can be easy go as well. Well, in the logistics of it, uh, you know, we have our hands on it from, from conception to almost consumption because our hands are on it at, at even at the USDA processing that we do. But when we're all done with that, at the end of the, that cycle, that rabbit being bred and being born and, and going, getting ready to go to market, we put it on a delivery truck. And that is probably one of my biggest fears. <laughs> Once we drop it off at the pickup spot, that it makes it there, doesn't thaw out, you know, and the quality product at the end of the line. And, and uh, when you're shipping, all over the country, you know, if you're local, you can, you know, take it, hand it to them, get your, your money, hopefully. And that's another thing is when you're shipping it around the country, you're relying on your money coming in time, which sometimes that doesn't always work. We've had, you know, one restaurant file bankruptcy to the tune of about $900. That was our first uh, real uh, kick in the fanny on small business. And we had to write it off. We were so far down the line that, you know, it was, we'd spent more money trying to go after it. So right. there's a lot of things that, you know, it, you have to think about other than just that 300 a week and go and start doing the, you know, the dollar signs coming in and not look at the dollar signs going out and go, okay, this is a 24 seven commitment to get it to work right. And that's, you know, through shipping and everything else and hope that you get paid at the end of the tunnel. You know, when I sold um, uh, artisan cheese to restaurants, um, I always got paid at the time of delivery. Are you able to negotiate and do that? Or do you always have to give them net 30 or something? Um, the way we work, because we're just, we're far enough away, we wind up having to ship. Um, we did try to pencil out doing delivery, but by the time you, you know, drive there and do all that, uh, it didn't quite work well, out. Well, and then when you get into some restaurants, uh, you, the restaurant may have a 
paying service out of a state three states away from where they're at so you're at the mercy of oh um i sent that in you know or it's a small accountant doing restaurant you know billing and stuff and you contact them and it's uh, well i'll contact them and it's like in the meantime the, the co-op's going hey uh rare hair barn uh you went through four ton of rabbit feed and you, we need paid but to kind of answer your question is anymore, um, what we do is ask them to leave us a credit card that we keep on file. So once the product is delivered, then I can go ahead and bill that card. And so that has helped really kind of shrink that lag time. Um, there are a few we still you know, pay by checks, but those are restaurants that we've had relationships for years with. So. Um, you know, I think it's just kind of all in what you want to negotiate up front. Some people will never like your terms and some people will be okay with it. Hey, this is Jason from the soon-to-be-launched Clean Jeans Farm in Middle Tennessee. I'm loving the Small Farm Nation Academy courses and all its content and my Farm Press website. Thank you, Jason. Jason recorded that message while being on a rig out in the Gulf working in oil, but he is planning and starting his farm, already creating his Farm Press website, you can get yours and all the marketing courses at the smallfarmnationacademy.com. Come on in, the water's fine. So back to your production model. Um, I, you know, I know that you're in cages. You got about 400 cages. You gave me some really good reasons for why you're running your business the way you are. We, we didn't talk about feeding. A lot of people, when it comes to rabbits, will just feed free choice. I mean, basically, you go buy your feeder, uh, you fill it up, uh, let the rabbit. You know, you fill it up again whenever it's empty. Another way of feeding, of course, is to feed a certain amount, uh, you know, per rabbit cage per day or whatever. How do you approach feeding and what have you learned that's most effective? I, I'm giggling over here because that's like his pet peeve is the people that just fill up the feeders. So I'm just going to let him answer that. Here comes a rant. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The short version of my feeding. Um, for example, the heritage meat rabbits that we raise, and we've raised thousands of them, we've processed over 18,000 just in, in carcasses, um, they will maintain daily on four ounces of feed, on a good pelletized feed. Um, now, when you get them into a production phase, they will still maintain on that four ounces of good quality pelletized feed until you you get them into the weaning or they have the litter well what i do is they're on four ounces of feed up until the time they have that litter and then i used to wait seven days before i added the next four ounces of feed but what we were finding was that pretty much across the board, and we want uniformity in all these breeds. I don't want to feed one breed this because they do better on it, and this breed because they do better on this one. It's one feed, one one feeding scenario. So once they have that litter, the seven days, I, the does were just making too much milk, which is a good sign, but you have to manage that. So. Some of the does were, were caking up with mastitis, which was the babies weren't drinking the milk fast enough. Babies were doing fine, but some of them would die off because that 
part of the udder was caked up. So what I did, I lengthened that to 10 days before I would up her another four ounces. Well, you would think three days wouldn't make a lot of difference, but it did. When we went to the 10 day uh, increase to the four ounces, that, that problem completely went away. So four ounces up until giving birth, then four ounces 10 days after giving birth, then she's at eight ounces. And then as the babies start to come out of the nest box, which I don't, I pull the nest box out probably earlier than a lot of people do because for two reasons. One, it becomes a litter box. Two, about 12 to 17 days, the rabbits will start coming out on their own anyway. Um, and that makes more room inside the pen for the litter and the doe. So, uh, and you can tweak that according to whether it's winter or summer. Um, I have two different types of nest boxes. One's bedded and one isn't depending on the time of the year. So she's going to have that litter on her for about five to six weeks, which is the natural weaning cycle for a rabbit. That milk production will start dropping at that fifth to sixth week. A lot of people have a tendency to leave their rabbits on there longer and think that they're doing the, the baby's good, but by that time they should be eating solid food and drinking. So that's when you want to take that uh, wean those babies at the five to six week window, split sex those rabbits, and then they can go on full feed then. But you basically want them to eat what they're going to clean up in 24 hours because feed is going to get stale. The flies are going to find it. And so you want them to be almost out of feed when you get there at the same time you're doing chores. So that doe has had her litter weaned. She will go back to the four ounces and where we breed year round, I'll start breeding her again and if she's in good shape she'll, she'll breed if not i really don't get too excited um during her uh lactation period and once they become breeding animals they'll get a teaspoon of calf manna daily that's the bucks the does anything that's in production um i look at that as kind of a neonatal vitamin because we're even though we're giving them a good balanced diet we're expecting a lot out of them to have a litter, wean, wean the litter, go back into breeding. We keep weights on the does uh, at breeding time and at weaning time. So you want to keep them in that kind of uh, a uh, athlete range. You don't want them to get too fat. You don't want them to get too skinny. Uh, and the only thing that's really uh, fed a full feeder is rabbits that you're wanting to fatten out and eat and have no intention of using for breeding stock. Even our barn that's specifically designated for replacement animals, they don't get full fed. They get four ounces a day and you can tweak that if it's, you know, as you go along, but use that four ounces as a window. Um, a lot of people overfeed them. And the first thing when they start asking me when they have breeding problems is, you know, I can't get my does bred, my buck's sitting in the corner, doesn't want to do anything. And I'll ask them how much they're feeding. And before we get too far, they're looking at me like oh, I'm feeding way too much. And, you know, that they just start laying on fat internally. A lot of the does we see that don't breed when we do process those as roasters, 
you'll find actually layers of fat around their organs, which strangles all that reproductiveness out of them. So, no, it's, and, it, and believe me, Eric, it rings true. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the idiot you're talking about who gave his rabbit way too much feed. And I, and I said, why, did, why can everybody else breed rabbits, but I can't? And, and, it, and I had to learn that the hard way. Yep, it's, uh, well, and your bucks end up doing the same thing. If you uh, continuously just dump feed in front of them, they get just, that's all they know is setting and eating and eating. And I like, uh, for, and I, I have 35 bucks working in the breeding barn, um, and I keep track of their weights and stuff, and I wanted them to be pretty close to breed standard. And if you, you just keep feeding in front of them, they're just going to overeat and, you know, be like a person one day, you know, going along and then overeating and going, I'm just going to sit in the corner this afternoon and, you know, you could put three does in there and I'm not going to be interested. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a common mistake because most other species, you know, cattle, sheep, goats, they'll have hay in front of them all the time. And so, you know, we kind of just, you have to get away a little bit from that mindset that that animal needs food in front of it all the time because um, rabbits are just a little bit different yeah so uh, touching on what you just talked about uh, in the process it sounds like you're weaning let's say at about six weeks so at six weeks you're sexing the rabbits and you're putting males in one cage uh, and females in another it sounds like and then I think I heard you say you're giving them you know um, free choice feed basically filling up their feet or giving them as much as they want how many on average how many are going into each cage and what's the size of those cages? The, the best size working pen is to not get over about three feet wide. And I, I, I built all of our pens um, and I do two foot wide, two foot high and around three feet wide. And it, it'll vary. Bucks, bucks, you don't want that much area. Uh, they'll, they'll go in a pen. I take about six inches off the width. Because uh, you want to be able to put the dough in there and, and let them take care of business and not run around half the afternoon. So, and the ease of catching them uh, that works real well. A lot of the pins you buy now are uh, it's hard to find a 24 inch uh, high pin, and I like for them to be able to stand up. I've even got a uh, I take scrap flooring wire and make a square uh, and raise it about a foot off, a foot and a half off the floor of the pen, and I call it the mommy saber, and that's actually, uh, it's suspended from the sides and the top, so she can jump up there, so when you pull that nest box out, a lot of times the doe will jump on top of the nest box when, because they'll, they'll only nurse a couple times a day, that's kind of a misconception with rabbits is, when do they nurse, how many times do they nurse, and you know, their milk is so rich, it's only a couple times. And if you have the time to stand around and, and wait to see it happen, it's few and far between. But um, so, you know, a lot of the pens now are out there like 16 inches high, which is, you know, a small breed. That's fine. But most of our pens, we don't go over three foot wide and two foot high. Um, the finished rabbits, uh, during the above freezing time will be on a gravity flow water system, which cuts my chores down. But I like to use on all the breeding stock, a water jar so I can make sure that um, they're drinking the 
you know, of a visual that they're drinking the amount of water because if they don't eat, they don't, you know, they don't drink, they don't eat. And it's kind of a, a double-edged sword there, but you have to make sure that with the gravity flow water system that you don't become complacent with it and get the idea, well, I put water in the tank, everybody's getting water because it'll, uh, if you don't check those daily, you'll end up with it being plugged. And if you're choring the same time and just run by and, and check them. And the first thing to tell is that the morning you go in and they're still feeding that feeder, they're not getting water. Nine times out of 10, you push that rabbit nipple and it won't be working. So if you're filling, you're just going through and keeping feeders full, you can just get into a mindset of, well, they're not, they're getting water because they're on a gravity flow system. And hmm. uh, Can we touch on processing for just one second? Are you doing your processing um, on farm or are you doing it at a processing facility? We are not doing it on farm. It's done at a USDA inspected processing facility, which is required for selling it to restaurants or transporting it across state lines. Are, is a farm able, I haven't researched this in a few years, but back when I was doing this, a farm was able to process on farm under PL 90-492 because rabbits were included as part of poultry if you were raising a small number of rabbits on the farm. Is that not true anymore? Or do you know? It, it depends largely on what state you're in. Um, I know states like North Carolina, you can do like 2,500, um, you know, home process, farm gate sales type of year. Um, in Kansas, I think it's around 250. Um, but each state varies tremendously. Um, so it just kind of depends on where you're at. And then, you know, farmers markets regulations vary um, from state to state. So. It just kind of depends. Well, finding a USDA processor for rabbits is, is, is a tough one. When we first conceived this idea, of, there was nobody in the state of Kansas doing it. Uh, they had, they were doing poultry, uh, but the first one had never done it before, and we kind of had to walk them through the system, and they had to do all the federal labeling and everything that had to come down the line through that but um and it it so it was a, a hard deal to find somebody to do that part of the marketing with the usda side of it and then we continuously kept having as we did more the processor kept raising the cost of processing us to the point of where it was becoming into the category of it's yeah. almost not doable barrier. anymore uh, because I can I can find a lot of other things to do for no profit uh, <laughs> a lot less work and then we we left that one just out of we couldn't basically afford to to do that and we had to find another one and and so they were doing only doing poultry at the time and we've been with them two years and, and there was some logistic stuff with that where we actually, they'd never done it before. And with us showing them and them doing their federal paperwork in on their end, we, we've been there for two years and was able to get the cost down. And then we had a price increase there, which nearly wasn't what it was at the other plant. So there's only two places in the state of Kansas that's doing it now. And uh, we're, we actually have our hands in on the processing now. Colleen and I are actually um, the last ones that 
that put them in the bag. And so we're seeing it to that point and, and going in the box. So um, that's kind of a, the USDA side of thing is, is, is another beast of its own uh, locally. You just have to find out, you know, I didn't know isn't a defense in the meat business or any, any marketing. So do your homework. So you're obviously advocates of, you know, uh, raising meat rabbits. I mean, you do this as a commercial enterprise and you've written a book about raising meat rabbits, but why do you think more farms aren't focusing on this as a core enterprise? Well, I think commercially, um, you know, it's kind of difficult just because of some of those challenges like um, processing and things like that. Um, Rabbits are labor intensive. You know, if you're going mm -hmm. to expect to make any money out of it and, and everyone has their definition of whether they're satisfied with a dollar per, per animal, whether it's chickens or whatever, you have to decide what's going, what you're going to be satisfied making with it. And rabbits are, if if you do them correctly and want to to make some money, man. I mean, you're not going to go out and, and a lot of people go to a restaurant and see the price of a rabbit dish in there and think, oh, you guys are, you know, making a making a rich item out of this, and that's leaps from it. But it's it's a very labor intensive commitment if you're going to make sure that your animals are treated right. And they'll tell you whether they're, they're living life right by the production they put out for you. If you're getting mediocre production, you're putting in mediocre time with them. And rabbits are a 24 seven. I, I tell people it's like Darian without ever pulling an udder. Um, once you put an animal in a, a pen or anything, they become 100% dependent on you for food, water, shelter, the, the list goes on. And if you go off and, and start out guns blazing and then it becomes, oh, who's going to do chores? We want to we, we go on vacation. It's hard to find anybody to come in and do farm chores for you. And we don't have children. So it tells you how many vacations we've been on. Um, but the commitment it, with rabbits isn't like buying a bunch of chickens or chicks through the mail and knowing, okay, I'm going to get a hundred of them. I might lose 10 of them. You could also lose all of them. And, but at the, I know pretty much on the calendar where I can put my push point of when they're going to be ready to process, I can make that processing date. And within that time frame, I can market them to friends, family, restaurants or whatever. So with rabbits, to, to do them right and, you know, animal welfare right them and everything else, you, you have to spend a lot of time with them and because each individual animal is, is its own entity and one may be doing better than the other and you have to spend a little bit more time with it and their babies need to be fostered off. You just can't lump it into turning something loose and, you know, rounding it up in and, and 180 days and, and having something ready to eat. Yeah, and there's also, of course, the issue with rabbits. Even if, even if you're raising them for the right reasons, like what you're doing, you have a, a heritage breed that you want to preserve. Ironically, one of the cases that I used to make, you know, years ago was, and there are people who don't get this argument, but I fully believe it. You know, the way to preserve these heritage breeds is to eat them because you have to create a market for them. 
So, but, but that also creates part of the problem for people starting a rabbit enterprise because consumers just aren't familiar with rabbits and they don't know what to do with them. Yeah, it's, it's gotten better in recent years, um, but it's still kind of a unique and novel thing for a lot of consumers. Well, and we, we, we've sent a lot of free samples out around the country, and we've, we've done that with the Piney Woods beef, too, because it, it's not, we're 100% grass-fed, and right there, you, you, a lot of people like the rabbit. You almost have to show them how to, to cook it and do things with it before you ever sell it to them, because once they get it, they ruin it it's a hard sell to get them back on it and talk them back into it so you know there's a lot of and these heritage breeds and stuff have to have a job that's one thing with the goats we're working with now there there really is no history with them uh, on what they were for whether they were a milk goat or a, a meat goat or a dual purpose and so um at some point you know somebody or a group of somebody's has to pick up the ball and start dribbling it and figuring out, okay, you know, you have to find a job for them or you have to have deep pockets and be able to take the ups and downs and the losses of, of, that happens within that venture. Hmm. Well, let's, in closing, let's touch for a second on the, the book that you just released a couple months ago, Raising Rabbits for Meat. How, how did this book come about? And I mean, how'd you find yourself writing a book and who's the target for this? Is it homesteaders? Is it consumers? Is it farmers or who? Um, well, we've been told, you know, over the years that we should write a book. Um, and we just like, yeah, yeah. One of these days, one of these days. Well, um, then we, um, well, actually it, it came from the livestock conservancy, our friends there, um, new society publishers was looking for a good, rabbit book and so livestock conservancy recommended us and i think it's kind of one of those cases if i knew then what i know now i probably would have you know run screaming the other way because i'd never written a book before so that was a whole different learning curve um but that's kind of how it came about was we just kind of wanted to um translate some of what eric's been doing over the years into a you know a format for people just getting interested in it to understand um, and hopefully it's helpful and you know i would say our target audience is just anybody um you know it's it's raising rabbits for meat but doesn't have to be i mean you can raise rabbits for you know well, other we've, reasons we've had to me a, a good meat rabbit can be put on any show table and we've had people that have gotten our breeding stock specifically for that so it's really not totally a for meat book they i have no problem with with anybody taking breeding stock I've selected for them and taken and showing and some have done well with it and kind of the other hatching on this book was to there's a lot of how-to books on livestock and stuff but they they give you just enough information to not fill those questions but we wanted to kind of give you you know it's like palpation with rabbits it's it's very seldom talked about and very few people will do it because they're afraid they're going to damage something. But that's a key element in being productive with rabbits is, is palpating. And a lot of people are afraid they're going to hurt them. But if it's done properly, it's a, you know, it saves you. I call them non-productive days and does where you're feeding them and getting nothing out of them. If your goal is to have something other than a pet. So we wanted to, to really key this book to 
people that always had that question of, well, you know, I read this book, but you know, what it didn't go into this. So what we wanted to do was not make it so technical that you got a, a brain buzz out of it, but it filled in the gaps. And, you know, I love the internet, but a lot of times you can get led astray by some of the internet things. So um, that's kind of where we wanted to go. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You don't know what you're going to get on the internet. And, and Colleen, I, I'm convinced the people who say to someone that, you know, hey, you should write a book are people who have never written a book because it is a labor of love and it's a hard thing to do. It really is. And the, the analogy is it's like, having a baby and I I've never had a human baby but I believe that's got to be about as close an experience as as you can get well and you Colleen and I've worked together we actually met on a very large corporate hog operation back too long we won't tell, yeah, we won't age, tell how long that but that we've way. we've worked together for years and the first question we get is how can you work together as a couple. And then now it's like, how did you write a book as a couple? Together? <laughs> so, Absolutely. Well, you know, you, between the two of us, we, we toss stuff back and forth and, you know, we, we kind of regurgitate all the questions we've gotten. And we used to do workshops and, you know, as people would come here and, and, you know, so we kind of had hands on of them. Oh, well, I was doing this wrong, you know, from the start, I need to do it like this. So, you, you know, you, you put it all into the, the, the pot and stir it and then out comes the, hopefully a book that everyone will feel like they're getting 95% of the information they need from some people that have been there, done that, not once, but 18,000 rabbits have been processed, not to count. We're a closed herd. We don't bring anything in from the outside. So on top of that 18,000, you know, the average about four to 500 litters a year and the animals that are kept back here and put into, you know, it's, it's, it gets staggering when you start putting numbers together. Mm, sure does. All right. I'll link to the book in the show notes. Uh, it's a, it's a great book to read if you're interested in rabbits. I know I am raising rabbits for meat. Colleen and Eric from Rare Hair Barn. Thank you so much for being part of Small Farm Nation. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Small Farm Nation. If your goal is to own a thriving farm business with loyal customers who gladly pay you the prices you deserve, check out smallfarmnationacademy.com. Small Farm Nation Academy includes hundreds of video and audio lessons, farm stock images, a community forum, business plan templates, and resources that will help you market and grow your farm business. Plus, you get a state-of-the-art farm press website free with your membership if you want one. And that includes hosting and email unlimited accounts. And get this, as a Small Farm Nation Academy member, you get personal one-to-one coaching from Tim, free anytime you'd like. Small Farm Nation Academy is like having Tim as your own personal farm marketing and business mentor on call, but at a fraction of the cost of in-person consulting. And Small Farm Nation Academy has a full, no questions asked, seven-day money-back guarantee, so there's zero risk to you. The time to start marketing and growing your farm business is now. If you're serious about having a profitable, thriving farm business, join smallfarmnationacademy.com today. If you enjoyed this show, please share the love by leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes, and by introducing Small Farm nation to anyone interested in farming or local food thanks for your support and until next time thanks for being part of small farm nation